27. I'm, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, so maybe a little different than yours. Um, it'll be on the screen. That's easier to follow along. Um, I just find it a little bit easier uh, to understand for our, our students, and so that's what I preach out of. But uh, Luke chapter 9, let's read it together. <clears throat> Starting in verse 18. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say that you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then Jesus asked them, But who do you say I am? And Peter replied, You are the Messiah sent from God. Verse 21. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. The Son of Man, which is a name referring to Jesus, must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we pause to pray not because of tradition, but we pause because we want to understand your word, God, and we want you to um, help us to understand what it is you're saying, God. May you give us ears to hear, God, may you give us hearts to understand, and may you give us eyes to see, just like the people in this verse, eyes to see that the kingdom of God is here. God, may eyes be open to the truth of your gospel. God, and may many follow you because of it. God, we thank you. We are not worthy of anything, God, but you give grace upon grace upon grace to us. And so we thank you for that. And we pray that this time would be a reflection on that. And we would be thankful leaving here, God. We love you and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So um, we'll just walk through verse by verse. I want to explain it and, and, and get to what Jesus is talking about. So we'll start in verse 18. It says, one day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. And we'll stop right there. And, and I, that can be, uh, you may view that as somewhat coincidental or just a way that Luke kind of goes, okay, we're going to transition. Um, but we find this habit over and over and over in Jesus' life. Um, and if we're, we're going to follow Jesus, we should probably learn from this pattern, right? All through the book of Acts and all through the book of Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus went alone to pray. Um, it was necessary. He's the son of God. He's got this special connection with God that we don't even have. And it was necessary for him, right? 
um, I feel this need right now to just kind of get away, just retreat a little bit. You know, it's, it's for rest. It's to be recharged. But here's what I really think it's about. It's, it's refocusing your mind on the kingdom, right? The, the main purpose, not all these other little things that we get so caught up in. And, and we should learn from this just at the moment. This isn't really even what the sermon's about. Um, but maybe today would be a good day to steal away and, and spend some time in prayer so that your mind is focused not on all the little kingdoms that you have going on, that I have going on, but that we would be focused on the kingdom. Um, let's continue. It says, Only his disciples were there with him. And he asked them, Who do people say I am? And so up until this point, as you, as, as you know, Jesus had done many miraculous things. He had healed people. He had brought people back from, from dead to life. I mean, he, had, he had done some crazy things, but he had also taught about the kingdom of God, about who he was. And uh, to be honest, he had riled up all of Israel. And everybody is trying to figure out, who is this Jesus? He knew there was buzz about him. He knew there was a lot of conversation about him. But he wanted to know from his disciples, what are they saying about me? What's the word on the street about who I am? Um, and so he asked them. He asked them that, verse 19. Well, I, I imagine they kind of didn't want to tell Jesus. But here they go. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, which who is dead at this point. Some say Elijah, who's been dead for 400 years. And others say you're one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. If you've, if you've read this uh, chapter before, you know in, uh, in, in verse 7, Herod, who is the, the uh, Roman ruler of Israel, he's the, he's the dominating force controlling Israel. He's an outsider. He's heard about Jesus. And this is, he's kind of trying to figure out, is this a character I need to be worried about? Is he trying to take over? Is he just the new show in town? And he suggests that maybe he's Elijah or any of these other prophets. Um, he knew he was important. He knew that he was claiming to be a prophet. And, and, and just to be fair to Herod and to um, the crowds, we should note that they're really not all that far off, right? I mean, Jesus is a prophet, um, but even Muslims believe that, right? Jesus is someone that speaks for God, um, but he is so much more than just that. And, and we should learn here that partial knowledge of who Jesus is doesn't result in you getting on the boat. See, Jesus is a prophet, but he is so much more than that. And if, if you want to be like Herod, you can stop right there. You can say he's just a good man, he's just a good teacher, he, you know, he's just a miracle worker, he's just a prophet. But that's not who Jesus is going to say that he is in this passage. It says this, verse 20. Verse 20. Then Jesus asked his disciples, But who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? So I don't think his real question, I don't think he cared about what the crowds thought about him. I think he really wanted to know, what do you think about me? You've been with me. You've seen me live my life. You've seen these miracles up close. You've heard my teaching. And, and I think Jesus is thinking at this point, I'm about to leave this all with you at some point. <laughs> I got 11. I got 11 of you that I know are going to stay faithful to me. I got to know if you're in this. I got to know if you really understand this, right? He, if they just think he's a prophet, they're just going to move on. But if they, they don't really get it, then things are in trouble. And Peter speaks up, as he always does. 
It says, Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. Peter says, you are the Messiah sent from God. This is the first confession of, of any of the disciples. I'm sure at this point in their life they've thought this, but, but no one has been bold enough to say it out loud. No one's been bold enough to just call it like it is. And, and to us, that maybe, I guess, just seems kind of, oh, cool, it's another name for Jesus. Um, what, what is meant by this? It, it's the same word that we, we call Jesus Christ. That's the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. And it's all referring to this one thing. So this concept, and, and Dad talked about it last week, but this concept of the Messiah has been around from the very beginning. And, and really you could say it's been around prehistorically, that, that God knew beforehand, before he even created the world, that this was the plan for the world. Um, God knew that his creation, humanity, he would create them, he would give them all that they need for life, he would, he would tell them this is the way to live, this is, this is the best way for you, but here's, here's how we're going to have good relationship. He knew he'd given them that. And he knew that they would reject that. He knew that they would uh, be so arrogant as to say, God, we know better than you do. I know you created all this, but we know better than you do. And he knew that Adam and Eve, and he knew that each one of us would reject that, right? And, and when Adam and Eve did that, that one single act of rebellion caused a canyon of separation between God and humanity, right? Because, because God was holy and humanity was not. They couldn't be together. See, but that, the story doesn't stop there. But God and his love for us and wanting to be in relationship with us. He promises in Genesis 3.15, third chapter in the Bible, he promises that one day, one day he would send a son born of woman who would come and in Genesis 3.15 it says he would crush the serpent's head. It says that he would fix our biggest issue. And our biggest issue wasn't political uh, situations. Our biggest issue wasn't economic downturn. Our biggest issue wasn't family strife. Our biggest issue was our separation from God. And from the very beginning, God promises that this Messiah, our Savior, our Deliverer, would be born and He would come and save us. He would, he would, be, he would rule on the throne of David forever. He would be the high priest of all high priests, right? All these Old Testament prophecies. And the whole Old Testament is about this expectation of this one son that's going to come one day and be the Messiah. This is no small term. And so when Peter calls Jesus the Messiah right here, he's saying something very, very big, right? He could not have called him in Jewish culture any greater name. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for from the very beginning. And so the main question here is this. Who is Jesus? And in our relativistic culture, it often turns into, who is Jesus to you, you know? How do you, how do you feel about Jesus? And let me just say this. Whatever you think about Jesus doesn't change who Jesus is, right? If you think he's just a moral teacher, that doesn't make him a moral teacher. If you think, as C.S. Lewis is going to say in a second, you think he's a poached egg, he's not a poached egg. Jesus is who he is no matter what you think about him. But each one of us must deal with that question. Who is Jesus? 
Because what he's going to say today is this. How you answer that question, how you deal with who Jesus was, changes everything about you. Literally, humanity is divided into two groups based on how they deal with this question of who is Jesus. Uh, R. Kent Hughes. And by the way, uh, I don't really know what his first name is. It just says R. Kent Hughes on his book. But it's not Rob Hughes, I don't think, unless Rob is an author and I just didn't know it. Uh, but he says it this way. He says, The average Hebrew on the street thought Christ was excellent. They were impressed with his prophetic character but they didn't have the slightest idea that he was the Messiah. Their best guess was that he was pro- a prophet. Um, I heard Rob say that one day. But You see, Jesus didn't really leave that option open to us. That just to be a, a great moral teacher or a good human being. The things he said, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. Um, and, and there's all kinds of conversation in our day about who Jesus is. And uh, one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis, he, he kind of touches on this. He says this. It's a little bit long, but stick with me. This is where the poached egg comes in, if you were wondering. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people, people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. He says it so well, right? Jesus didn't come to just give us a little wisdom on, hey, here's kind of how you should live your life from my experience. He didn't come to just be another Gandhi or another um, Dr. Phil or whatever sage we have in our day, right? No, he didn't come to be that. He came to be the Messiah. And we each have to answer that question of who is Jesus? Verse 21. Very interesting verse. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. (laughs) Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. And I think this, this verse can be very confusing for some of us. Um, I, I actually had some boys ask me about it the other day, and I go, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't really know what he meant by that. Um, but think about it in light of what we've talked about. After this revelation that Jesus doesn't deny the fact that he's the Messiah, right? When he says, this is who I am. Don't tell anybody. He doesn't deny that fact. Um, I think the disciples would have expected, this is awesome. We've literally been waiting for 2,500 plus years for this one Messiah. And here you are. We need to tell everyone, right? We need to go and make this known to all of Israel that the Messiah, our Savior, the one who's going to deliver us, has come. You see, but through time, what the Jews had done was this. 
instead of um, seeing how the Messiah was supposed to come for their greatest need. And what was their greatest need? Their separation from God. Instead of believing that he was come, coming for that, they attached all this other stuff to what the Messiah was supposed to be. So um, they wanted a political overthrow of Rome because they were, they were dominated, right? They wanted uh, an economic uh, giant to come and just make them prosperous. They wanted a military takeover. They wanted to be great as a nation. And so for them to hear, if, if you went around saying the Messiah has come, what does Israel hear? They hear, all right, we're overthrowing Rome. All right, we're, we're going to be the greatest nation on the earth. But that's not what Jesus came for, right? That's not what he came for. And so I think that's why he warns them. You better not go around saying I'm the Messiah. We're going to be squashed like that by Rome. Because that's not what I'm here for. I didn't come to, to throw off the Roman yoke. To, to smite Gentiles and bring political independence, right? That's not what I'm here for. So they're going to be viewed as rebels if they go out and say this. And so what Jesus does here is this. He explains. Here's two things. And this is the rest of the text. One, what is the mission of the Messiah? If I didn't come to overthrow Rome and to make Israel the great nation it once was, what did I come for? So we're going to talk about what the mission of the Messiah is. And then two, what is the disciples' response to that? How do we respond to that mission? <clears throat> so verse 22. Here he says it. And again, another very interesting verse. Verse 22. This is the mission of the Messiah. It says, The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He said, He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, He will be raised from the dead. Now, if you, if you could read this with fresh ears, if you've never had read that before, I think you'd go, what? This is the mission of the Messiah? What are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're going you're gonna to suffer? You're going to be rejected by our leaders? If, any, if you need to be in good with anybody, it's got to be the leaders, right? You're going you're gonna to die? And I, and I know you said that part about raising from the dead, but that doesn't... I don't know what to do with that. Well, what are you talking about? How are you going to be our Savior if you go and suffer, be rejected, and die? That makes absolutely no sense. That, that is a terrible, world-changing strategy, Jesus. But apparently that's what it's about. In, in, the, in the passage, uh, parallel passage in John, um, John's Gospel, it's John chapter 12. We're going to read it. It gives us a little bit of more illumination as to what Jesus is talking about. John 12, verse 23 through 26. Jesus says this. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. It remains just a kernel of wheat. But its death in the ground will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor 
anyone who serves me. And so what Jesus knew was this. The Messiah's mission was not to be this political overthrow, was not to be this economic prosperity. No, the Messiah's mission was to come and die. And he knew that his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, Gary Litton, right? All of those things would bring about multiplication of disciples, just like a grain of wheat being put into the ground, growing into a plant and producing many, many more. He knew that his death would cause multiplication like had never been seen in the world. And he knew that, that by doing this, he would spark a movement of disciples that were willing to do the exact same thing. He knew that they would ultimately be killed just like he would. And if they didn't know him, they would die spiritually. So what did he do? He lived a perfect life and he died in their place. That means because of the wrath that God had towards them because of their sin, he said, you know what? God, I'll, I'll take that from them. I'll go, I'll go take their rightful punishment. And they can have the righteousness that I deserve, this perfect relationship. Now that sounds like a plan, right? That sounds like a plan to change the world. But you see how backwards that is for them? That makes no sense in our world. Give up your life so you'll keep it. But if you try to hold on to it, you'll lose it. It doesn't make sense to most of us, right? But that's what Jesus says. I'm the Messiah and this is my mission. So what is our response? As disciples of the Messiah, what is our response? Verse 23. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Three things. You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And they're really all descriptions of one thing, which is following Jesus, right? So, just like Jesus is the ultimate picture of self-denial, saying, you know what, I deserve a right relationship with the Father, but I'll take their death. I'll take their punishment. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to look like Him and be like Him. We're going to be the same thing, right? It means self-denial. And, and this means, uh, I think, one way to think about it is that we give up the throne of our life. We give up the lordship of our life. We, we voluntarily take ourselves off the throne and we say, Jesus, that's yours now. I give up my life and you, you call the shots. You make the plans. Um, our, our friend, R. Kent Hughes, not Rob Hughes, says this. He says, this is much more radical than simply a denial of certain things. This mandates a rejection of a life based on self-interest and self-fulfillment. Instead, a disciple is to be one who seeks to fulfill the will and teachings of Christ. It's not just I give up that thing. No, it's I give up my whole life to you because you gave up your life for me. That's turned from your selfish ways too. Take up your cross daily. Um, this, this turn of phrase, I think, has been used in a lot of... Uh, Incorrect ways. We, we can view crosses as just the mundane um, burdens of life, like phone bills and paying for insurance and, and dealing with a, a crazy in-law, that sort of thing, right? Those can be the crosses in our life, but I really don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. Um, and our friend R. Kent Hughes says it this way. <laughs> he just says it better than me, so I'm just going to quote him. Uh, this is, Chandler, do we have it? Number two. Says, what are our crosses? 
A cross results from specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life. It comes from bearing disdain because we're following the narrow way of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He says this. It comes from living out the business and sexual ethics of Christ in the marketplace, in the community, in the family, in the world. It comes from standing true in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. So he's saying this, is that taking up your cross means that every area of your life begins to look like Jesus. There are no boxes, and, and this part I'll, I'll stay Byron, but over here I'm going to look like Jesus. No, no, no. He's saying take up your cross, and there's this emphasis on daily, right? This is not this one-time thing, I, I, I went to the cross, No. You know, it's not inherited by birth because you were born into a Christian family. No, this is discipleship. It's day by day. It's a commitment over and over again. And it's awesome, right, to see like six people baptized in the last two weeks stand up and say, I'm following Jesus for the rest of my life. That's great. But it takes that every day, right? It takes that every week, committing your life to follow him. So what does it mean, number three, to follow Jesus? Do what he did. Um, live like he did. Embrace his teachings. So when he says, this is the way you're supposed to live, you just do it. You let him um, radically change you to begin to look more like him and less like you, right? I don't look like Byron anymore. I begin to look more and more like Christ. And yeah, it's imperfect, but there should be a progression that we look more and more like him. So this is what it takes. This is what it takes to be his disciple. And I think if you were... Um, I, don't, I don't know if everyone's a believer in here or not. I, I know a number of you that aren't. And so I think hearing that, you can go, really? That's a lot, Byron. That cost seems like too much. I got I to gotta give up everything? I got I to gotta totally sell out for, I don't know. That just, that seems like too high of a cost. What am I getting in return for giving up my life? But I know many of you in here, older saints and, and people just further along in the faith than me, you can testify to this over and over again, that the more you know Jesus, the more you walk with him, the more you see him for who he really is, the Messiah, your Savior. You look at the cost and you go, hey, that's nothing. This is so worth it. This is absolutely so worth it. So much greater than the cost. And I guess what I, would, what I would challenge you with today is this. Some of you don't believe. Some of you are on the fence. Some of you, eh, I'm not real sure. I want you to consider the intellectual possibility that all of this is true. That, that there really was a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he really did come and say all these things and do all these things. And he really did go to a cross and die for you. Like, there is the possibility that that is true. Consider that intellectually. And if it really is true, then how should it change your life? How should you answer that question of who is Jesus? If you really see him for who he is, you realize the cost of following him is nothing compared to what I get in return. <clears throat> Let's go on, verse 24. through All the way through 26. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, if you've got this really tight grip on it and you won't let go, says you will lose it but if you give up your life for my sake you will ultimately save it 
And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and his holy angels. You see, we don't have time to analyze each of this, but what Jesus is coming down on this, he's saying this. How you answer that question of who is Jesus will determine your life. If you think he was just some sage who lived 2,000 years ago, you might adopt some of his principles about how to manage money, how to, how to relate to your wife. If you think he was just a, a decent little teacher, you may learn a few things. If you think he was crazy, you're not sitting in here today. But if you really think that he's Lord, if you really think that he's Messiah, and he gave up everything for you, it will change everything about your life, every area of your life. It'll change your future. Robert Stein says this, the loss of one's soul is far too great a price to pay for possessing the whole world. He's saying, you're not getting a bargain here. You think, you think, attaining the whole world and, and holding on to it and, and just, ugh, no, this is mine. You think that's where you're going to find life. He's saying, no. You find life when you give it up. You find life when you sell out for him. Verse 27, he says this, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. A little confusing. There's a lot of interpretation out there. But what I think he means is this. I think he's saying this, that when Jesus came, it says that he went around and he preached. He preached that the kingdom of God is here. And he demonstrated that by doing miracles. The kingdom of God had arrived. Why? Because the Messiah had come. Because our Savior, our, our Deliverer had come. And no longer, all of human history changes from this point. No longer was having a relationship with God about doing all the right things, about praying all the right prayers, being the right ethnicity, having the right connections. No longer was it about any of those things. From this point on, the rest of human history would be different. The rest of human history would be about grace offered, this gift of grace offered. And in some standing there that day, their eyes opened. Somehow it just clicked. They just understood it. They saw Jesus for who he really was, and it changed everything. I think that's what he's saying. They had seen Jesus, and he truly was and is the Messiah. Man, and it changed the rest of their life. So here's how I want to close. Um, just three questions of application for us um, based on the text and just what it talked about. The first one is this. What messiahs are we looking for? What messiahs are we looking for? You see, because just like the Jews, right? They, they had attached all this other stuff to what a messiah was supposed to be. The messiah was really just about fixing their biggest problem, which was sin, their separation from God. But they had turned it into being a political leader, being um, an, an economic deliverer, and all these other things, right? We are no different than them, Right? What messiahs do we look for? What do we look to as our functional savior? What do we put our hope in? Whether that's a political party, whether that's, a, a, God forbid, a presidential candidate this year, right? Or, or an economic situation or a family uh, condition or, or a person or, or having a certain amount of money. Or, what is our savior? What are we putting our hope in? What is our messiah that we are looking for? 
You see, because if we're looking for it in any other thing but Jesus, he says, I'm the Messiah. I have come. If we're looking for it, it can't stand the weight of that. It will never satisfy you. Don't put your hope in something so small as those things, right? So what messiahs are we looking for? Two, we have to ask ourselves the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? To be honest, it's not hard to see how you answer that question by how you live your life, right? It's not hard to look at my life and see who I really believe Jesus is. If I think he's just a great teacher, I'll live a certain way. If I think he's a madman on the level of a poached egg, I'll live a certain way. If I think that he's Lord, I'll give him everything. But everyone in here, everyone in the world must deal with that question of who is Jesus. And if you've never really thought, never really considered the intellectual possibility that he came and he lived and he died in your place, and I just beg you today to do that. And then lastly, last point of application is this. Are you following him in discipleship? Are you following him in discipleship? You see, it's one thing to see Jesus for who he is and say, yeah, he's my Lord, he's my Savior, but then to not really do anything with that. Like Holly said in her testimony, she said, when I got saved, I thought, well, cool, we did it, we're done. Like, woo, got that taken care of, right? But what she began to realize that no, it's, it's a daily thing, it's a growth, it's a process, right? It's growing, and, and, and her confession at the end is, I just, I want him to be the center of my life. I want, I want everything to revolve around him. What does that mean for us to follow him? Are we, are we looking more like him? Are we doing what he did? See, he says that we will, we will do even greater things than he did. I don't really understand that, because Jesus did some amazing things. But are we growing in discipleship? Let me give you this. He says this today. He guarantees. He flat out guarantees. He says, if you'll give up your life, if you'll follow me in discipleship, you'll gain life beyond what you could ever imagine. Life abundant here on earth and life eternal with me. That's his guarantee to you. Are we following him in discipleship? Are we growing in him? Because he really is the Messiah. Whether you think he is or not, he really is. And he came to save us. Let me pray for us. Um, if you, go ahead and, if you would, um, stand and we'll pray together and our, our band will come back up. But I just want to pray for us for a second. God, we thank you for your word. God, and we thank you that um, you've given it to us. We're not left in the dark as to who you are. We're not left in the dark on, on how to be in relationship with you. It's very clear, God, that you gave your son for us. God, that he took our place and he gave us his righteousness so that we could have a right relationship with you. God, thank you that we know that, God. And I thank you that many in here, their eyes have been opened. It clicks with them. They understand it. And they're following you in discipleship. God, praise God for that. God, I pray for those in here who don't know you. God, may they have their eyes opened to see that you're worth it. The cost may be something, God, but giving up your life for the sake of you is so worth it, God. God, I pray that you would just convince us of that more and more and uh, continue to help us look more like you. God, we pray all this in your son's holy name. Amen.